We're going to start with some questions that we got from YouTube. Sure. We have one that came in from Kay Puta, and Kay writes, how are you able to juggle a production company through high school and university and still be a comedy legend all those years? Wow. That's all news to me. Oh, okay. Um, all right. Uh, comedy Thank you, Kay. legend. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I started my first production company when I was maybe nine or ten, uh, Boy of Destiny Productions. Oh, nice. Um, no, like... It was making movies, making little videos with my friends was my hobby. Like, it's what I did. Like, when other kids were playing soccer or um, kissing girls, like, I was making little movies with my friends. And as I got older, as I got in high school, I found fellow friends who wanted to make movies. And we formed a production company um, even just to make, we made a feature in high school. You know, we made three features by the time like I, I went to college over the summers. Um, and from a young age, I knew that I wanted to make movies and, and work in, in creative entertainment fields. And, um, and like, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And so like starting my own company that started as a goof and then actually I've Johnny Voodoo Productions, which I started like as a goof, uh, in high school and now is like my actual LLC production company that I used to make stuff um, I just maintained it ever since and um, and and yeah I guess I've just always kept that going because it's like I have jobs to make money but then also for fun uh, or as a creative artistic outlet like there's the stuff I do over here and luckily we live in an, in, a, in an industry we work in an industry where sometimes we can even make those things overlap um, I don't know if that answered your question at all but oh, I think it does. Well, it's, for, it's Kay's <laughs> question but yeah. I think that does yeah. I know you talked about you grew up in um, I'm sorry I should say it Nolens, but N it, no, it's New Orleans, New Orleans we don't okay. like Nolens. <laughs> okay, yeah. when you spell it N-A-W-L-I-N-S <laughs> trying no, to be cool okay no. see it backfire yeah but uh, so you were from new orleans born and raised in new orleans mm -hmm. on the bayou not really the bayou but um uh yeah i grew up right on the other side of the mississippi river like from the french quarter um and yeah like growing up in new orleans was a really i didn't realize how unique it was like while i was growing up because i just thought every city was like this it's like oh every city's got like it's super old and you have Mardi Gras, right? I didn't realize, I, I don't know, I just didn't understand its uniqueness until later on when I left. And I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool place. Um, and the whole city has a vibe of like creative energy and, and really supporting, you know, creativity. And, uh, and I, I loved it. And there's like a supernatural sort of medium. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of voodoo. Yeah. There's a lot of ghosts. Okay. Everything's haunted. Uh, anywhere you go, there's some spirit doing something. Nice. Um, Hopefully behaving. Hopefully, you should you should pretty good. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the cool thing about New Orleans is like anywhere you go, it'd be like, hey, see that house over there? It's like 180 years old, and a bunch of people died in that house. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. But now it's a dentist's office. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> now he does root canals. Yeah. So. Uh, okay, so then we have one here from Nate's Film Tutorials. Hi, Nate. Um, how did you go about starting your own production company, and what advice would you give to those who are starting out? So we kind of talked about that. Um, yeah, I mean, all you got to do to start a production company is register it with the city, and then you have a company. But then it's just like, then you actually have to go do stuff, you know? Then you have to make stuff, and, um, you know... 
like I live in Los Angeles. No matter where you live, uh, you find the creative people in your city and you just kind of like get to know them and hang out with them and become friends with them. And it's amazing, you know, even going to a barbecue, uh, like it's a friend's birthday barbecue and you go and you start talking to people. You're like, so what do you do? And you're like, oh, I'm a composer. Uh, oh, cool. Like I actually have been looking for a composer. Um, and then you get their card or you get their information. The next time you need a composer, you met that person at a barbecue. And, uh, you know, they, they often say, like, in the movie business, it's who you know, right? But it, that doesn't just mean, um, like, your family connections or something. It's just, like, who you know, like, socially in life, you know? Because you went to a barbecue and you met a composer. And then part of, like, having a production company or making stuff is just knowing people in all fields. It's not just... You know, like as a writer, I sit at home and working on my laptop by myself. But like if you want to actually produce stuff and have a production company, you need to know people in all the fields. You need to know sound people. You need to know composers. You need to know craft services people. Like you have to just get out and and like be introduced to people in all fields so that when it comes times to make something, uh, if you have a production company that makes stuff, you need to be able to call anyone in any position. And if someone's like, hey, do you got do you have a, a trans transpo guy? Like someone who drives trucks? You're like, yeah, I know three. I know three people I could call right now, you know? And that's really helpful. Do you have to force yourself to get out sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. I like to be an isolationist, isolationist often. Um, but also, like, just trying to get on set in any capacity. Even, you know, when I was younger, I was just a PA on set. And you just meet everybody, right? You meet the craft services person. You meet the transpo guys. You meet the hair and makeup people. And you become friendly with them and you get to know them. And then, you know, so much of production uh, is just referrals of, you know, the DP is working on a new project and that project needs um, uh, a craft services. And he's like, oh, well, I know a person that I met on my last thing. Um, here, why don't you call them? And so... Um, I mean, I love being on set. Like, I love directing and being on set. And, like, it's so much fun um, that, to me, that's that's almost like networking, right? It's just being on a set and, like, meeting everybody. Because some directors will go on a set and just not talk to anybody but their AD or, like, the actors, you know? But then, but I'm someone who, like, on the first day, I try to introduce myself to everybody. I'm like, I want to know who the transpo guys are. Like, I want to know every art department person. Like, what is their name? and uh, get to know them all and become Facebook friends with them and because maybe we'll work together again. Maybe I'll need you or you'll need me. Who knows? How did you get a screenwriting agent right after college, was it? I went to the University of Texas and they used to do this thing um, called the Hollywood Showcase where they would take an hour's worth of student films and they would show it out here in L.A. at the DGA Theater and they would invite... Uh, alumni alumni al alumni of the of the university just to come and see the short film just to see like what are the kids doing back at school and so the year i graduated um i had written uh i'd written a short film that played and i had written and directed another one so i had two including a puppet short that ended up becoming the inspiration for the happy time runners but so I was, you know, living in Austin. I was delivering pizza. I was going to move to Chicago and do Second City and then go to New York because, you know, I grew up thinking, like, L.A., like, Hollywood, like, 
sell out? What am I going to sell out? Um, <laughs> and and so they picked two of my short films to play at this thing. And I graduated like on Saturday. And a couple days later, like I came to L.A. just to go to the screening. Just because I'd never been to L.A. before. And I just graduated. I was like, I'll go to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'll go, I'll go to the beach. And so I go to the screening. And there was an agent at the screening who just happened to go to my college uh, and he was just there to see the shorts and he liked my short film so much that he walked up to me at the reception afterwards and said uh, hey I loved your short film have you written any features before because I'm a literary agent I represent writers and I said well I wrote one for class like I took a screenwriting class um, and he's like oh well send it to me I'd love to read it and I was like sure so I got his card and I went back to Austin and I mailed it to him this was back back in the day where you mailed people things wow um and I just kept delivering pizza, saving up money to move to Chicago. And then a couple months later, he called me and he just said, hey, we read your script and we love it. We want to sign you and represent you as a writer. But you have to move to Los Angeles. You can't move to Chicago because we want to be able to send you to meetings. And I was like, okay. So I was like out delivering pizza. And I went back and I was like, I'm out. I'm moving to Hollywood. Um, wow. And just from this short, these short films that I had done that got someone's attention and, you know, and I know the story is ridiculous and that I was 22 years old and I was plucked from obscurity. But also part of the story is, you know, I had these short films that somebody saw. And when he came to me and said, what else do you have? I was able to say, well, I have this script that I wrote, you know, and I gave it to him. And he read that and he liked it. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who who make short films or, you know, who as a calling card, which is an amazing calling card is a short film to get people's attention and I always tell them like you have to be prepared for if someone sees your short film and likes it and then they say what else do you have what do you have any features like do you have something you have to be able to say yes like here is the other thing um, because I have a lot of friends who have this short that they've worked really hard on and they'll go play a festival or something and then they'll meet an agent or a producer and the, and the agent will say what else do you have and they're like well, no, I've got some ideas like of stuff I want to try to start working on, but um, nothing right now. Like you can't do that. You have to have something ready to go. That's my piece of advice. And when going back to when you were delivering pizzas that yeah. day, did you actually get the call while you were on a run? Like you know. So this is actually a really funny story. Um, <laughs> so I was I graduated. And I was living in Austin, and I was I was moving out of my apartment because for I was going to spend six months living with a friend of mine in her spare bedroom, saving up money over the summer and into just like I graduated in May when you graduate, and then I was going to move in January. So I had like seven months where I was just going to deliver pizza and make money, and so I had to move out of my apartment. So I moved everything out of my apartment except my answering machine. The only thing that was still in my apartment, because this was before, I don't even think I had a cell phone yet. It was 2001. So I had an answering machine, and when I gave that agent a business card, by the way, still my agent, still my agent oh, to wow. this day. Here we are, 16 years later. Um, when I gave him a, my card in Los Angeles, the only number that was on it was my apartment in Austin, because I didn't have a cell phone. Um, so the only way he had of contacting me was to call my apartment. So I hadn't heard from him for like two or three months or whatever. And I was like, oh, I guess he 
never got my script or didn't read my script. So the only thing left in my apartment was my answering machine. So I went and I moved everything over to the new place, and then I had to go back clean and then take the answering machine um, away. So I go back to clean, and there's a red light blinking on the answering machine. And I was like, oh, I have a message. And I'm beep. And it's like, hey, Todd, it's uh, Stephen from the Conner Agency. Really, uh, read your script. Give me a call. Had I, had I gotten to my apartment like an hour earlier and unplugged the machine, I just never would have gotten a call from him. Who knows if he would have tried to track me down by some other means. Wow. But, um, but, but that message was waiting for me. Uh, and the only thing left in my apartment was that answering machine. So knocking on wood because I was really lucky. Um, but I then got a cell phone uh, and I stayed in Austin for like three months delivering pizza because I still needed to save up money to move to LA. Because just because then I had an agent didn't mean I was like rich or something. Uh, I still needed to afford to move to LA. So I was delivering pizza, saving up money. I bought a cell phone and I gave it to my agent, my agent, my new cell phone number. Um, and he took my script that I wrote for class and he, get, he, he gave me some notes on it and I did a new draft. And then he sent it around town as a spec script. And he showed it to a bunch of producers. And, like, I didn't know what that meant. And so I'm, I'm out on a delivery in Austin. And my phone rings. And it's my Hollywood agent. Um, and he's like, Todd, hey, uh, we went out with your script. And we just set it up at Paramount. at the It was Kelsey Grammer's company at the time, Gramnet. And I was like, oh, oh, cool. Like, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? And he's like, well, it's $10,000 option, plus you're going to get Writer's Guild minimum of um, $27,000 to do the guaranteed rewrite. And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? What? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, so it's a guaranteed $37,000. And I was just like, Bleh. I was like, that's more money than I've ever even heard of imagining. Because um, I'm making like $7 an hour at this pizza place. So I was, it was like a dream. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I went back to the Double Dave's Pizza where I worked. And I walked in and I was like, I'm out! I quit! I'm Hollywood now! But then I'm a nice guy, so I actually finished my shift. Oh, that's uh, good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And then, but then, that's admirable. I think I even finished work one more shift, but then I, uh, and then, but then I quit. And then I moved to L.A. Um, but that being said, I did then learn the harsh realities of, like, I then, it's not like everything I wrote got sold or I got jobs that easy. Like, I thought that's how it worked because my first script out the gate, like, I got optioned and got a rewrite. So I was just like, oh, every script I ever write now is going to get optioned and set up. But no, it took it took a while for it to happen again the second time. I, I hit lightning in a bottle that first time. Um, and I moved out to L.A. thinking, like, I'm a wonderkin. I'm an awesome, young, hotshot 22-year-old. And then the harsh realities of being a working writer actually set in. And I got, it got hard. How soon after that? Oh, pretty soon. Pretty soon, okay. Uh, pretty soon. Like, I wrote another script. You know, I moved out, I wrote another script, and I'm like, cool, let's show this one. I'm sure I'm going to set this one up, and no one cared. Oh. People were like, nah, nah, what else? And I was like, oh. And then years, I mean, years went by before I actually set up another one of my own scripts. Because, you know, I learned very quickly that when you want to be a working writer, it's not like you write scripts and then go sell them to people. Most jobs you're ever going to work are you writing scripts for other people based on their ideas or pre-existing material so it's not like people are looking for original scripts as much as it is hey we need a writer to rewrite 
that draft of the Ninja Turtles movie or, you know, we bought the IP for some 80s cartoon and we need a writer to write a script for it. And um, so I very quickly realized, like, oh, I actually have to work really hard now to go to meetings and meet producers and try to get an assignment, is what it's called, um, uh, to, in order to get paid <laughs> to, like, write stuff. Uh, and for years, that's all I did. I mean, today, to this day, that's my primary source of income is I just do assignment work, um, which is a hard job. Like, you spend half your time trying to get the next assignment, uh, and then the little free time you do have, you try to work on an original script that you hopefully can sell to someone someday. I heard you say, or maybe it was your executive producer in an interview say, we will believe it when we have a call sheet. Oh, yes. Happy Time Murder. So yes. it's been, what, 16? 16 years. I mean, so my friend D. Robertson and I, uh, we're the, we, that puppet short film I made in college that I wrote and he directed. And then we both moved out to L.A. in 2002. I think he had moved out a little earlier than me. But that's when we hatched the idea of, like, let's do a feature, like a puppet human buddy cop movie and write it, do it as a feature. And we came up with the characters together and the story, and then I wrote the script. And the original plan was, like, he was going to direct it. Uh, we're going to go out and make it ourselves. We're going to raise a little bit of money and go shoot it. And then we realized, oh, that's it's very expensive, like, to make a puppet movie. You have to build every set because you need puppeteers under the floorboards. Uh, so the, our thought of doing it as, like, a cheap little indie, like, quit, quickly went away. And we tried to set it up at a couple places over the years, but didn't really pan out. And so we put it on the shelf. And um, and for years, people would get interested in it. And Dee and I would always say, uh, Dee, who's still heavily involved with the movie, is an executive producer in the movie. Uh, we'd always be like, we'll believe it when we see a call sheet. Like, they would attach an actor and everyone would get excited. And we'd be like, yeah, we'll believe when we see a call sheet. Or they'd get a bunch of money. Like, they'd set it up at a financing company or a production company. And we'd be like, yeah, we'll believe it when we see a call sheet. Just because year. I mean, we set it up at the Henson Company in 2007. And years, I mean, nine years went by with a a lot of times where it would look good but then not happen. And our joke, D and I's joke with each other was always, we'll believe when we see a call sheet. And then... One day, uh, I get a call that Melissa McCarthy's doing the movie, and they're going to shoot it. And I was like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see a call sheet. Like, still, still. And then one day, I got a call sheet. Like, then one day, I got an email with a PDF in it of Happy Time Murders shooting day one. And I was like, oh, it's real. Like, it's really real. It's not going to fall apart. Like, it's really happening. And I went to set, and um, I got to see these puppet characters that Dee and I had came up with probably drunk at a bar in 2002 and these locations like that we had you know imagined uh, years ago were like oh they built the set and they built all these puppets and here they are and they're actually shooting this movie it's real and we're on set and here we are uh, but still, I was still skeptical. I was still like, no, something bad's going to happen, right? <laughs> like a meteor is going to hit the soundstage. Um, still, something bad's going to happen. Like, uh, And still part of me sitting here with you right now. The movie's going to come out in a couple weeks. I still think something horrible's going to happen. Like part of me, my, my pessimist personality is like, something still horrible's going to happen, right? But I've, I've seen billboards and bus ads 
I've seen commercials. It's, this movie's really happening. It's really coming out. Unless this is all some elaborate prank that you guys have all been pulling on me, which I would not be surprised. It could be a Philip K. Dick reality distortion. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. Is it real? Am I really a puppet? You know, yeah. We don't know. I would not going to be surprised if I wake up tomorrow and I walk out into my living room and I see my wife and I'm like, um, oh, yeah, the Happy Time Murders interview I did yesterday went really well. And my wife's like, what's the Happy Time Murders? <laughs> And I'm like, wait, what? And then I go to my computer and it never has existed. And it was all been a dream. Well, if you're like most people, myself included, I get nervous when things are kind of going. Because if you've had the bottom fall out of certain things. Oh, you, something's you going know, too smoothly? Right. You're oh, like, yeah. no, this is a bad sign right here. I don't trust if anything goes too smoothly. <laughs> like, I'm always, not just with like making movies, but with anything. Like, if I get a new router from my Wi-Fi and I plug it in and it works Right away, I'm like, what's wrong? Right. Like, this is, there's no way. Like, there's no way that was this easy. Nothing's ever this easy. Um, it's going straight to the White House. Exactly, yes. It's going to Russia. Um, Didn't you write the script in, like, an interesting scenario? You went to a motel or well, something? Well, yeah, so when D, D and I first came up with the, the characters, like, we slowly came up with the characters and kind of the loose outline of the plot. And then... Uh, when I wrote the script, when I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write the script and then like, D, you're going to be kind of like my bounce board. You're going to be in the room with me and I'm going to be able to like run stuff by you. So what we did was we're like, we're going to get a hotel room and I'm going to sit at the laptop and you're going to just like be in the room, like pacing or doing whatever it is you're doing and, um, and, and helping me. And so we went on online and we just found the cheapest hotel room we could possibly find which is by LAX, and it was like a quality inn, and it was like $39. And I remember the only food... We had this grand vision of being bohemian artists who were going to go right in a hotel, and then you show up, and it's just the saddest LAX hotel. And the only food anywhere near there was... There was an AMPM where we could go get coffee, and there was a subway, like a 24-hour subway, that we would go eat at. But we holed up in this hotel for... I think it was one night, and then we sat in the lobby. Like, we had to check out at a certain time, so then we <laughs> sat in the lobby of the hotel across the street. And we just banged out. Like, I banged out a first draft. I mean, it, it wasn't good, but, I mean, it was serious. It was, like, 75 pages in 24 hours or something like that. Just writing, just writing, just writing. Um, and it was pretty awesome. D and I, we should go back to that hotel. Just, like, the night of the premiere. Yeah. We should do an after party. In that sad little LAX hotel room, were there moments there that you're like, "What are we doing? This is this is like we're we're almost living out a writer's sort of fantasy out of a, an '80s movie." And yeah, I mean, as a writer, you always have this vision of like what writers are supposed to do, um, and so, and I've even done it since. Like, I've my jam now is I love to get a hotel if I have if like I'm on a deadline. Uh, I'll get a hotel room for a day or for a night and I'll just stay up all night writing or I was I wrote a novel a few years ago and when I did the second draft of it I got a room in Palm Springs for like a week and I just went out there for a week and a couple times I've had I've been on deadline for a script um, like on an assignment and um, I'm like oh I was supposed to write the script over the last eight weeks and I haven't started it yet so I'm just gonna go get a hotel room for a week um but I did have a grand vision of like, oh, you're supposed to drink while writing, right? Like, isn't that what Ernest Hemingway did? So I'd buy like a big bottle of whiskey and I'd put it on the table 
And I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm going to start writing. And then I would have a drink. And one drink in, I'm like, I don't want to write anymore. I want to just sit on that big, comfortable bed and watch a movie. So I can't do that. I think some people can like drink whiskey while they write because that's what writers are supposed to do. Right. But I can't. I just lose it. Like I have, I have one sip of whiskey and I'm like, I want to do anything other than this right now. Well, what about a nice hotel versus a seedy motel? Because one, you kind of think like you get your brain gets yeah. tricked that life is good and safe. And the other one, you realize like there's a desperation to you, some of it. Well, the difference between a, a seedy motel or a nice motel, the only thing, the only thing that's important is that you go someplace incredibly boring so that there's nothing tempting you to do anything else. And, you know, one time I wanted to work on a script. So I went to like the Glendale Hilton oh. uh, in beautiful Glendale, California. Yeah. Just because I knew there was nothing around there to walk to, to that that would be that would tempt me to like go to someplace because everything around there was like offices that closed down, um, and so I was like, oh great! And even when I've gone to Palm Springs, I remember one time uh, I, I did I like doing the um, the Travelocity secret deal, like where you don't know where you're staying. <laughs> You just know the price of it because you can often stay someplace cool for like half the price because you're basically promising to stay there no matter what. So I remember once I, I had to go for like a week to write a script and it was the fall. It was like October. And so I go and travel off see secret deal and they're like, you can stay at a five star resort in Palm Springs for like 70 bucks a night or oh, something. Wow. And I was like, okay. So I did it. But, you know, the secret deal, you have to agree to pay no matter what. They can tell you you're staying at the Fleabag Motel and you have to stay there. I mean, it has to at least be the star rating that you signed up for. But anyway, so you because you pay ahead of time. You have to pay before you even know where you're staying. So anyway, so I did it and they put me at the Riviera in Palm Springs, which is like a cool old retro, like 1960s oh, resort neat. hotel. Mm -hmm. So I show up. And it's October, and I walk in, and I was like, hey. Uh, they're like, oh, welcome, Mr. Burger. You're here for five days, I see. And I'm like, yeah, um, what's important? I'm here to write. Like, I have my laptop, and I'm here to write for five days. So I need to make sure my room has a desk in it because I don't want to be stuck in a room that doesn't have a desk if I'm here to write. And they're like, oh, well, actually, um, our only rooms with desks are, like, back in Tower 4, uh, which doesn't have a view of the pool. It's actually not by the pool. I'm like, that's fine. I have no desire to go to the pool. I'm not getting in the pool. Like, well, it's also not near the fitness center or the bar. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fine. I don't want to be near any of the cool stuff. I just want a nice, quiet room that has a desk in it. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, just so you know, you're going to be the only person in Tower 4. And I was like, perfect. So it's basically like The Shining for a week because... I was literally the only person in an entire wing of this resort. Um, and it was October in Palm Springs, which is like the windy season. So you'd be sitting there like working and you just hear like howling winds outside and like trees smashing up against the window. And you would go walk around these big, spooky, totally empty hallways. And it was pretty awesome. Um, and I, and I, I've tried to replicate it, but it's never worked out. It was a magical time. But I highly recommend that. Going to Palm Springs in the off-season because it's super cheap. Because um, nobody's there. Like, when it's... Everyone goes for the summer, like, to go in pools. But go to Palm Springs in, like, October, November, and nobody's there. It's great. Hole up someplace. It's magic.
What part of the screenwriting process would you say you're the best at and maybe then not so great? Like, are you great at the first draft but not so great at rewrites or maybe it's the opposite? Uh, I definitely, the, I would say I'm, I'm really good first draft, let's say. I'm really good at plotting. Like, I really, I figured out the mathematical formula to like a plot of a movie and being able to figure out exactly when everything should happen because really when you think about it writing a movie especially Hollywood movies like I know there are movies that break the formula but it is all math it's all a mathematical formula and you need certain things to happen on certain pages and the inciting incident needs to come around here and you need you know emotional character journeys to kind of happen on here and you need this and that and the other thing so I feel like I'm really good at um, figuring out a plot and then figuring out how it all goes down my weak spot, definitely on the first draft, is like, why are any of these characters doing this? Or like, why do we care about them? You know, like, what are the emotional journeys like of the characters? Sometimes uh, I, I, I think of almost being secondary. Like, I'm such a plot person that I love to figure out like what actually happens in this movie um, from A B to C. Like, how does it start? What is the middle? What is the end? But then I have writer friends who are totally character people who they think of the character first and the entire backstory of that character and what happens with that character's emotional journey. And then they figure out the plot of the movie, you know, like I'm the opposite. I think of the plot of the movie and then I figure out who are these characters really like, what do they want? What are their emotional journeys? And that's what I figure out like in the rewrites, like that's what I go back in. Um, but I'm super OCD and like, I won't finish a script. I won't, if I start a script, I have to finish it. Like, I won't do anything else. Um, and, you know, I'll write an outline, number one to 100. I'll, I'll just number page one to 100. And I'm like, what happens on every, this is every minute of the movie. This is every page. What happens on every, in every minute of this movie? Oh, on wow. page one, this is what happens. Page 15, this is what happens. Page 82, this is what happens. Page 100, this is the last scene. And I'll fill in all those gaps. And I'll put it on my desk. I'll print it up. Actually print it. I'll put it on my desk. And then I'll start writing. And I'll be like, and I'll, I'm like, I'm not going to be happy until I've gotten through all 100 pages. And I'll just spend, I'll ignore all other aspects of my life. I won't go out. I won't do anything. I won't go see movies. I'll just work on it. I'll wake up at 630 in the morning and I'll work on it until my brain's fried and I can't work on it anymore. Um... And I'll just do that until I have a first draft. And the first draft often sucks, but at least it's done. And then you can set it aside, take some time off of it, and then come back to it. And the rewrite is the fun part for me. Do you always know what's going to happen on line 100? I mean, are you? is the end of it always sort of clear yeah, to you? Yeah, the first thing I do is I write down page one. What happens on page one? What happens on page 30? That's the end of the first act. That's your inciting incident. Like, that is your movie, right? It's what happens on page 30 is if you were to go see a trailer for the movie, page 30 is the thing that's in the trailer, right? Um, and then I, I write down what happens on page 100. Like, how does it end? Like, what is the ending? I need to know where this is going, and then I figure out how do we get there. So, and then you fill in all the holes. You, you, you know, on page 80-ish is, like, the end of the second act, like dark of night like what's gone really bad for everybody like why is this the end of the second act and then you fill in all those holes in between but I I like to 
I like to come up with really cool endings, really cool third acts, like, and then move backwards in a way. Like, I want to know where this is all going and how it ends. I feel like a lot of people, a lot of writers, spend a lot of time on their first act, and then, and and and, and when you see a lot of movies the first act's really awesome and then they just kind of don't know what to do with it like they have a really good idea that they don't know what to do with what I strive really hard to think about the second half of the movie and then to a fault like often people's criticisms of my work is like yeah your first act is really meandering or like really long but your second half is great so I try to focus on the second half of the movie but you know the hard part being a writer is most people don't even get to the second half of the movie when they're reading your script they read the first ten pages and your first 10 pages better blow them away. Whereas I often believe in like the slow burn of a first act of like, take it really slow and let stuff develop, um, which is to my detriment often. Um, but I'm getting better. I'm getting better at it. Let's suppose you finish, the, because you had this thing where you want to finish something, and I think that's great. Mm -hmm. But let's suppose you finish it, and then eventually you go back to it, and you're like, I'm not really into it. Do you just leave it alone? But the fact that you finished it, was what was mainly important to you? I often, I'll always want to get it to a point where I can show it to other people. Like, I've never written anything, I've never done a first draft of anything and been like, eh, like, I'm glad I wrote this, but I'm never going to show it to anyone. Because I feel like you never know when you're going to meet a person who wants to do the exact thing that you had written five years ago. So I always want to get a script to the place where I would feel comfortable showing it to someone else if it ever came up. Like, I don't show it to people, but I, I, I would show it. To, like, I would read it. I would be happy with it. I'd show it to, like, my wife just to make sure it makes sense and help me look for typos. And then I'm happy to put it on a shelf and never show it to anybody. Unless one day I'm at a meeting, one day I'm at a barbecue, and someone's like, yeah, I'm a producer. I, uh... My brother owns a furniture store in Arizona, and I'd love, I can get to free location, and I have half a million dollars. And if I can find a movie set in a furniture store, I can shoot there. And that's when I'm able to say, funny, I have a thriller that I wrote set in a furniture store five years ago. No one's ever seen it. Like, no one's ever read it. I just wrote it because I wanted to write it. It's like a story I wanted to tell, but I was very aware that there's no market for half a million dollar furniture store movies. But then, who knows? Happy Time Murders. You know, Dee Robertson and I came up with these characters, came up with a story. I wrote the script. We tried to get it made for fun. We just wanted to do it for fun. Like, and it didn't happen. Put it on the shelf. Years later, uh, we weren't doing anything with it. It was just sitting on the shelf, the virtual shelf of my computer. My agent calls me. He says, hey, the Jim Henson Company called me because they're starting a new division called Henson Alternative and they're looking to do adult oriented puppet stuff and they wanted to do, they called and they basically like we want to develop an R-rated puppet movie do you have any writers who you think would be good fit to do that and my agent said well actually I have a client who already wrote an R-rated puppet movie uh, it's called The Happy Time Murders he wrote it like 5 years ago and they were like what um, so he sent it over and they read it and they're like, oh yeah, great, let's do this. This is exactly what we wanted. But we had already done it just for fun. So that's always been my, my method. It's just like I write stuff for fun that I like and then I put it on the shelf and maybe one day it'll come up in conversation and someone will want to make it. Who knows?
What makes it an R rating? What are these puppets doing that are so that's so adult oriented? Uh, they, it's sex, drugs, violence, rock and roll. The puppets are doing everything that uh, people do in their everyday life. But we're finally seeing uh, what the puppets do behind closed doors, what the puppets do on the streets, how the puppets actually talk to each other. You know, um, I often, even you know, I often had. I've written a bunch of family stuff, and I've written a bunch of PG movies. And, but I've also like when I, like the movies I've directed have always been R, and they're always filled with cursing and you know adult themes. And people have asked me like, well, why do you why do you have these characters like cursing all the time? And I'm like, because well, that's how people talk. Like my friends when we're hanging out, like that's how we talk, you know. And when you want to make a movie about a certain kind of person, like they curse a lot, like they drop f bombs, or this is how they talk to each other, and when we set out to make a movie about the actual, like what if there was an actually a world where puppets and humans coexisted with each other and the puppets were like this underclass of society that were, you know, uh, sugar addicts and like uh, <laughs> living on the streets and like were this underclass, like they would actually, it would be pretty rough. Like, and they would talk to each other in pretty rough ways and it would be, uh, it would be a really interesting world to explore. Um, and the thing about the the funny thing about R-rated comedies is that there's a lot of movies you see. There's this very fine line between PG thirteen and R, right? Uh, and so it's very easy to take a script and be like, "Why don't we just make this PG thirteen? All you got to do is cut some f bombs out of it." Um, but but if you are going to commit to making an R-rated movie. A lot of times, studios or production companies will say, if this is going to be R, let's make it R. Like, let's go for it, you know? Like, because why not? Like, we've already committed to appealing to a certain kind of audience that wants to see an R-rated comedy, and we've alienated anyone under the age of 16 who can't go see it unless they're with a parent or guardian, so we might as well go for it, you know? Like, there's no point in making an R-rated comedy that's going to have like one or two F-bombs and that's why it's R? Like, why? Like, let's just go for it and get nuts and like, let's show the sordid private lives of puppets and all the shenanigans they get up to. You know, you had said if you're going to go R, yeah. like kind of like go big or go home, right. so to speak. Um, and I was reading a Judy Bloom novel that was specifically for adults and mm -hmm. I thought, oh, how bad could this be? And then basically first page in, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a reason. Yep. Yeah. So were there scenes that you had to, like, amp up in terms of it wasn't R enough? Well, yeah. I mean, when we like, we set it up, when I set up at the Henson Company, um, we had conversations as to, because we wrote it as a hard R. Like, you know, we came up with this idea and I wrote the script to be hard R. When we set it up at the Jim Henson Company, we had conversations of, should we make this PG-13? Like, are we alienating segment of the audience like if it is R but you know this is the mid 2000s and and like you know South Park was incredibly popular and Ted came out and people loved Avenue Q and there was definitely a market for R-rated entertainment that like twisted the tropes of children's entertainment and you know when we set the movie up at STX STX was like no, 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 this is going to be R. And we almost we almost want it to be super R 
so that we wanted to make it very clear this is not a kids movie like we want to embrace the dark twisted part of it and we want to totally explore that we totally want to go down that road and we want to make sure parents know that this is an R-rated movie that is not for your children. So even part of the ad campaign, I mean, is like them making it very clear to people, this is not a children's movie. Do not take your children to this movie. Um, and so we never, we never, like no one ever said like, hey, R it up. Like, we really want you to make this, um, we want you to add stuff that's just for, you know, gross out factors or anything like that. But we were we were always welcome. It was always understood, like, no, 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 we want this to be our, we're totally fine with it. And if anything, like, we want everyone to know that um, because we don't want anyone accidentally bringing, like, a seven-year-old into this movie. <laughs> um, so, because, you know, I'd seen a lot of R-rated comedies where it was clear, like, there was a studio note at some point that said, we need some sequence that's just there to be gross you know like this is a gross up comedy we need there's something that has like nothing to do with the plot or the story or the characters that we just need to throw in there but we never really encountered that i mean people were always like the the nature of the story and the characters itself is r and everything that happens to everybody is r so it kind of worked cohesively rather than we need a we need something here that's going to be crude just for crude sake do you think you're a better writer when you're going through happy times in your life or when maybe things are a little bit uncertain and you think that's when you're more creative? I think you're always kind of the same writer no matter what mood you're in, but what you're writing about changes. And I think, you know, everything we write says something about something, right? And whether it says something about the human condition or the world um, and if I'm in happier times, if I'm in better moods, I'm probably writing something that is more specifically positive or celebrating the good things about humanity. But if I'm in a darker place, if I'm sad or if I'm upset, I'm probably writing something that is more a biting satire of the bad parts of the human condition. But probably the writing level is the same. Like, I don't think me being, you know, me being in a bad place or something makes me a better writer. Um, and I definitely don't think, you know, artists don't need to suffer in order to make good art, you know? But I think what you are making art about definitely probably changes. And depending on what you're experiencing at any given moment. We had this comment come in from Millie Purpose. How do you know people will laugh or share and have sort of the same humor that you will have? I mean, you never know when people are going to find funny what you find funny, and you never know when they're going to laugh what you laugh at. But sometimes I don't care. Like, to me, I'm just trying to do something that I think is funny, and I hope, with fingers crossed, that other people are going to find it too. Find it funny too. Um, and, you know, there are certain jobs I'll take where I try to, like, if I'm going to write a kid's movie, I try to think, get into the head of a kid. Like, what would I have thought was funny if I was a kid, if I was seven years old? Like, would I find this funny? But when I write, when I'm just unbridled and I'm writing a comedy and I just want to write something really funny, I just think about what would I, Todd Berger, find really funny? And, uh, and if, 
other people find it funny, great. If they don't, well, that's on them. Maybe they need a better sense of humor, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, but you never know. And, like, you can't, I think as a comedy writer, you can't try to get in the heads of other people and think what they're going to think is funny. You have to just write what you think is funny, and then you'll find out later. I mean, I wrote stuff in Happy Time Murders that I thought was really funny, and then we had a test screening in the movie. People did not think that that joke was funny. I thought it was really funny. Or the opposite. There would be something that I didn't think was very funny and people thought was hilarious. And you're like, oh, you never know. Like, you never know what people are going to find funny. You just hope you hit more than you miss and, um, and hope that people are on the same page with you. But really, we should all be just... We should all be writing movies that we want to watch. We should be the target audience of our own movie. And even if you're writing a kid's movie, you should want to write a movie that you would want to take your kids to. Uh, or if you were a kid, you would have wanted to watch. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so like you should be your own audience. That's, really, that's a bumper sticker. Yeah. I like that. Be, <laughs> we, we should all be audience. our own audience. That's probably like a Netflix slogan we don't know about. Be your own audience. <laughs>